Welcome to a special episode of Capital Conversations. Uh, this is our ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C., but today we are coming to you both from Washington, D.C., where I am in our Leland House studio early in the morning, and Hong Kong, where ERLC's Vice President of Public Policy, Travis Wusso, has been this week, uh, where I believe it is uh, 13 hours ahead. Uh, so, Travis, do we have you? Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Going well. How are you doing? How's the uh, how's the jet lag one weekend? Um, you know, it's of course I'm naturally almost over it, so that I can uh, come back to DC and suffer from the backside of it. But yeah, that's right. It's not too bad. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, thanks for thanks for making time for this at the end of what I know has just been a full week. Uh, I'm sure in many ways a sobering week for you to be on the ground uh, there. There in Hong Kong, um, we we wanted to do this special podcast because Travis, you have been you've been tweeting about uh, the people that you've been meeting with, the protests that you have seen up close, and so I just thought going into the weekend, uh, it could be really good for our people to hear more about what you are doing and and really what Southern Baptists have sent the ERLC to do in our work throughout the world, where we see vulnerable people who are standing up for for their rights, for their human dignity. Uh, and I just think it's awesome that in God's timing, uh, you know, you you planned this week to be in Hong Kong, and then it ended up being quite a significant week. And so we thought this special episode of Capital Conversations uh, could be really interesting and and helpful to people. Uh, so, so let's just start with, why did you decide uh, to go to Hong Kong, and who else is there with you? Yeah, so we, we've been working on uh, China policy, I would say religious liberty and human rights in China for the last year or so. We've done a number of, of different um, initiatives as, as a part of that larger project. And so we had planned to come to Hong Kong to do a film that was focused on religious liberty in uh, Xinjiang. We've done a podcast episode about that. The fact that China is holding one million, possibly more than that. Uh, Uyghur Muslims uh, in Western China, and so the the original purpose of of our trip here was to meet with some experts here uh, here in Hong Kong. It's obviously difficult to get uh, into the mainland if you're uh, doing a human rights project, um, but to meet with some experts here who have done work on human rights within mainland. But as you mentioned, this as it turns out, these last couple of weeks have been uh, two of the. Um, you know, I th- only time will tell really how significant they are, but they certainly have been two of the hottest weeks in terms of the protests uh, that have been going on for the last five months uh, here in Hong Kong. Last week was uh, was a week of really dramatic escalation in terms of violence on both the part of the protesters and also the police. Uh, and then this week was, you know, kind of the repercussions of that. Um, Sunday night, a, a group of, of students, around 100 students, occupied and then holed themselves up in Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Uh, and there was a you know, fairly dramatic standoff that, that is still continuing uh, between those students and the police who have been trying to enter the university and get them out of the university as well as counter protests and so on. So um, it's, been a, it's been a tumultuous week uh, here in Hong Kong. And, you know, and so in some ways it's, it's changed the dimension of what we've been talking to people about, you know, we've, you know, anytime we have a conversation or try to have a conversation about, uh, what China is doing in the mainland, you know, the conversation inevitably 
pulls back to Hong Kong because this is, you know, it's their neighborhood, it's their reality, and it's it's what people are are dealing with. And so we've been able to see some of the connection points between those two things, and you know, those two situations, both what's what's happening here in Hong Kong and also uh, what's happening in the mainland, um, and you know, explore some of those connection points. So you, uh, wh- where are you staying while you're there? So we are, you know, Hong Kong is kind of has two, you know, two parts. There's Hong Kong Island, which is um, kind of the center of what was British colonial Hong Kong. Uh, And then there is uh, what's called Kowloon, which is connected to the Hong Kong Peninsula across Kowloon Bay. And so we're we're on the Kowloon side. Kowloon is a little bit more Chinese, a little bit less colonial. You know, and so as a result, the people who the people who live in Kowloon, you know, tend to have fewer international ties, and so this is where some of the protests have have, have really been centered because the people who are living here, you know, unlike you know folks who you know have American passports or British passports, you know, if things get you know if things really deteriorate in Hong Kong, they can leave. You know, they can go somewhere else. But generally speaking, people who are living in Kowloon, this is their home, and so. You know, if the situation here deteriorates, you know, this this is the only place that they have. This is, you know, it's their hometown. And it really has been deteriorating. Help us understand with, I, I know people have probably seen news reports about a university and and students being barricaded in and, and, and police. What is that situation? It might be helpful to sort of take take a step back to around five months ago when these, where, where these protests uh, began. And the the incident that really triggered this latest round of protests there were some protests in 2014 2013 2014 but the the incident that triggered this most recent round of protests had to do with with a bill that dealt with the extradition of hong kong residents to mainland china um, and what this bill would have done is would have given the hong kong authorities the ability to to send uh, you know, to extradite criminals or people who are accused of being criminals uh, from Hong Kong to the mainland, from Hong Kong to Macau or or to Taiwan. And what what sparked this this bill in the beginning was was a murder case, actually, where a a Hong Konger and his girlfriend went to uh, Taiwan. He murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan and then returned to Hong Kong. And so the Taiwanese government was trying to was trying to get this guy to come, you know, they're trying to extradite him, charge him and and have him sent back to Taiwan to stand for trial. But there there is no formal extradition treaty between Hong Kong and Taiwan. And so and so you know there's a number of ways that the government could have managed this situation. They could have done a one-off situation, they could have done a uh, an extradition treaty that really just dealt with or an extradition law that dealt with uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. But instead what the central government did here and it's really unclear why they did this, but it was clearly a misreading of the situation. They they introduced this very broad bill that would allow for mainland China to accuse any Hong Konger of any crime, and then would basically facilitate, you know, the extradition of that Hong Kong resident to mainland China to to stand trial. And so, you know, this this sparked, you know, and and really animated widespread fears among Hong Kong. Uh, among Hong Kongers about where, you know, where their city is going, you know, what their relationship um, with mainland China is going to look like in the future and in the present. 
Uh, and so people really took to the streets uh, to to protest uh, to protest this bill, uh, to demand uh, that that it be withdrawn, uh, and so on. And so, you know, we can talk about you know some of the context for that in a minute. But that's that's really what sparked all of this. And you know, five months later, the bill was ultimately withdrawn about two months ago. You know, but as with a lot of these sorts of things, you know, this sort of presenting cause, this extradition bill, you know, ended up sort of unearthing a number of of other concerns about about the future of Hong Kong. And so the protesters sort of famously have these, you know, these five demands. We can talk about them. And that is what, you know, that's what these students are continuing, uh, continue to protest today uh, is, you know, basically police basically amounts to police accountability you know, a fair, in, in their judge, in, from the perspective of the protesters, a fair way of handling uh, criminal charges related to these protests, and then also uh, formal democracy for the residents of Hong Kong. Um, and so those protests are continuing. Uh, the government here is is fairly dug in. Um, it's unclear uh, whether they will make any concessions that will, you know, that will satisfy the protesters. And as we've talked to different people around here, um, you know, everybody has a sort of different opinion about how much longer all of this is going to continue. But, you know, the general consensus is nobody knows. Um, and it's not going to be over anytime soon. They're certainly not within weeks or days, uh, yeah, and, and months and, and possibly longer. Some of your some of your tweets, uh, which is just I, I really appreciate you doing this while, while you were there so that we could be following along. Uh, you just talked about how everyone in the city seemed to be angry. Uh, and, and you talk about, you know, some are angry at the government, some are angry at the protesters as you were just, as you were just outlining, but, but that the city just seemed like, like a complete and and total standstill. I mean, I'll just ask a question that, that I know many, many people may be thinking, have you personally felt unsafe while you're there this week? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think Scott Wade and I are both, you know, we're both white American guys. And so we're, we're plainly not you know, belligerence in terms of this conflict. Um, you know, I think if either of us were Asian, it might be a little bit different story in terms of whether we could get swept up into this. Um, you know, but, you know, even when we have been, you know, kind of in the middle of, of, of the action, it's, it's pretty plain that we don't belong. Um, and so I, you know, I haven't felt, you know, personally, you know, personally in danger in any, in any sort of meaningful way, you know, but I would say we're, you know, I mean, the the nature of the protests is it's a very fluid situation. I mean, the one of the tactics actually that um, uh, that the protesters have adopted is instead of, you know, with the exception of Polytechnic University, you know, they instead of trying to occupy a particular place or occupy a, a building or, or whatever, um, they've been um, moving like water, they say. Uh, and I mean, we, we've certainly seen that where you're walking down the street and then all of a sudden, you know, you're surrounded by uh, folks who are trying to erect a barricade at the end of the street that you were trying to walk down. But, you know, I don't want to sort of traumatize them. We, we, you know, we haven't been in any sort of danger, but, um, you know, but the protests are very active. I mean, they're, um, you know, they're, they're sort of all around uh, the neighborhood that we're staying in. So, so you've been meeting with local leaders, pastors, government officials. Some of these meetings, I, I, I would think uh, maybe they don't want to be recorded. Others, they're open to to being videoed. How, how do you handle that when you're when you're meeting with somebody to say, you know, hey, we we would love to shine a light on these pro democracy protests. Uh, would would you be okay if I film you? Like, just walk people through. Like, what does what does that look like? 
<laughs> well, I mean, our, our strategy is sort of get the camera out and make them say no. But I mean, in, in general, I think most people have been, you know, they're, they're eager to tell their story, regardless sure. of, you know, where, you know, where they're coming from, you know, as, as a, as a part of this. I mean, we, you know, we've met with a couple of pastors, you know, where their churches are sort of divided over these issues. You know, they, for understandable reasons, don't want, uh, you know, don't want to be on the record or, or don't want to be on the record in a context that they can't fully control. I, and I get that. But, you know, the, I mean, all of the government officials who we've met with have been very interested in uh, speaking to a camera because they have a story to tell. You know, they have a perspective that they want to share. So I want to ask you about two of those that you met with here. This was three days ago now. You said great meetings today with counselors uh, Charles Mook and Dennis Kwok. I'm not sure if I said those names right, but tell us who those men are and, and what their role has been in uh, in this situation unfolding in Hong Kong. Yeah, so Mr. Mock and Mr. Kwok are both they're, they're members of different parties, but they're they're a part of the what's called the pan-democratic uh, coalition, the opposition uh, coalition here in Hong Kong. And they're different. Um, you know, their their perspective on on the situation is different. But, you know, I think broadly they're sympathetic to uh, the arguments that are made by the protesters, uh, sympathetic to the demands that are uh, are being made. And. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, I mean, we, I met today with, uh, with a member of, of, you know, what's called the pro-establishment coalition. And, you know, I mean, I, I, in fairness to them, I mean, they, you know, they also want to see, uh, you know, see an end to the protests and, and, and a way forward and accountability for the police and accountability for protesters and and those sorts of things. But, you know, I would say the long-term aims are different. I mean, what, what Mr. Mock and Mr. Kwok, you know, both share is, you know, is a desire uh, to see um, universal suffrage within uh, Hong Kong, you know, one man, uh, one vote for the central government. I think to sort of take a step back, um, Hong Kong was a British colony for 156 years until 1997, when the British government handed uh, sovereignty uh, of Hong Kong over to the Chinese government. And as a part of that deal in 1997, the, you know, the way that this region, this what's now called the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, uh, the way this city was supposed to be governed was under the principle of one country, two systems. That is, Hong Kong is a part of China, it's one country, but there's two different systems. One system operates in mainland China, that's the system that's managed by the Communist Party of China, uh, and then a different system governs here. Uh, which is more Western, you know, it's a common law system. I mean, it's, it's a, it's very similar to, to the United States or re- really more similar to, to way that, that the United Kingdom uh, functions today with a couple of notable exceptions. And one of them is the way that uh, the leader, the chief executive um, it's called of Hong Kong is elected. This, the, the chief executive, the current chief executive is a woman named Carrie Lam is not elected directly by the people. She's elected indirectly by, you know, the sort of complicated system of electors who are appointed, most of whom are appointed by Beijing. Uh, and so one of the core demands of the pan-democratic movement is, uh, or the pan-democratic coalition, is that the central government would be accountable directly to the people and not accountable uh, sort of indirectly uh, to Beijing. Obviously, the, you know, the, the, and I would say that, you know, the pro-establishment coalition 
you know, sort of loosely or, you know, vaguely supports that same idea, but there's big difference in terms of, uh, in terms of the sense of urgency. And so, you know, what we were talking about with uh, these two members is uh, members of the legislative council is, you know, their perspective on where things are headed, what role the United States uh, has in uh, helping to promote democracy in Hong Kong and, you know, and, and helping to promote uh, human rights, both in Hong Kong and in the mainland in China. Yeah, definitely. So, so I know it's the end of Thursday, and uh, and I, I haven't been able to see this on on your Twitter account yet. But right before we hit record, we were talking about two really fascinating individuals uh, that you met with that you met with today. So, so tell us about those uh, those Hong Kongers and in uh, in what this day was like for you. Yeah. So, so we met today with two of kind of the you know the older generation of. Uh, Hong Kong political figures. Um, one is a woman named Anson Chan, and the other is a gentleman named Martin Lee, both of whom were, you know, around and a part of the negotiation of the 1997 uh, handover and also the Sino-British joint agreement uh, in 1984. You know, so both of these, you know, both of these figures have been around uh, for a long time, and. You know what part of what we were interested in hearing from them is their perspective on I mean really where you know what what China's aspirations are and and how Hong Kong fits into that. you know I think as we're as we're sitting here in two thousand and nineteen, we are talking about and thinking about a China that is very different than the China of nineteen ninety seven you know when things were opening up. I mean, China seemed to be, you know, moving in the, in a positive direction. It was, you know, sort of two steps forward, one step back, um, you know, things were unsteady, but, you know, the, the clear trajectory seemed to be that China was, was growing, developing, uh, seeking to become a part of, you know, responsible part of the international order. Um, you know, whereas the China of 2019 that that's been led by president Xi for the last 10 years or so, uh, is a very different China. You know, it's a China that uh, is more aggressive, that that is more confrontational, uh, that is more interested in spreading what President Xi calls the Chinese dream or the Chinese model, uh, which is really illiberal, um, and I think you know represents a significant threat uh, to the international order. Um, you know, whether directly or indirectly it does. And so, you know, so part of what we were interested in in hearing from, you know, both of these two very experienced politicians, you know, I mean, uh, you know, they've, they've, both of them have been, uh, you know, as a part of this work for many decades and have seen, you know, a number of different leaders uh, come through mainland China. And so we were interested in, you know, hearing their perspective on, you know, the trajectory where things are headed uh, and you know what the future holds for Hong Kong, and I would say you know we're you know, working on a film, and and uh, you know I'm I'm very uh, eager to you know to be able to to show you what they had to say to those you know to those two questions. But just as a preview, I mean nobody really knows. Um, uh, nobody really knows what uh, you know what the future holds. I mean the you know sort of the big you know the big date that is looming in in every in every Hong Konger's mind. Uh, is 2047, which is kind of the, you know, in, in 1997, when when sovereignty was handed, sovereignty over Hong Kong was handed back to China, it triggered a 50-year process where Hong Kong would sort of be folded into 
uh, into China and ultimately, you know, perhaps become, you know, one country, one system. That's 28 years away. And I think, you know, both um, Mrs. Chan and Mr. Lee, you know, have a, a sense of, you know, sort of guarded optimism. You know, 28 years is a long time. And I think, you know, they're, they're both holding out hope uh, that things will turn around in terms of the way that the um, Communist Party is managing China. But, you know, there are certainly significant reasons to be concerned. Sure. No, that that definitely makes sense. So I, I, I'm really excited uh, to see the film, to see what you and Scott, uh, the different conversations that you've had. I mean, it's it's just been it's really been what what seems to be for the outside world watching a pretty significant uh, week in Hong Kong even with the the head of police it looks like being swapped out for somebody who's who's you know maybe more of a Beijing loyalist and and just some really really incredible things that have been that have been shifting uh, with with the protests and and with Beijing's involvement uh, in in the protests but for the purposes of this podcast here I was curious if you, if you could end our conversation uh, with the story of a local pastor, with the story of a pastor there, uh, Philip Wu, uh, you, you tweeted a picture of this man, and there's something about about the photo. I mean, seeing you as as our as our friend and and our, our fellow ERLCer uh, over there with the Hong Kongers. I mean, there's something about that photo that was just really powerful. Could you share uh, Philip Wu's story as a as a pastor there in China? Pastor Philip is a he lives in Hong Kong now, uh, and for many years has had, you know, has had a ministry in mainland China. He still has a network of pastors who he uh, mentors and and takes care of, you know. And over the course of of his ministry, you know, faced pressure from from the Communist Party in China, and was arrested ultimately four times. The last time he was arrested was in 2015. You know, which is how we got to know him is is he was a he was a client of our friend uh, Bob Fu, who runs an organization called China Aid, and 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 Bob um, ultimately was was successful in in defending uh, Pastor Philip, Pastor Wu, and uh, and facilitating his his return to uh, his return to Hong Kong. You know, but I think what you know what struck me about our meeting with with Pastor Wu is. I think in the in the U.S. we, I mean, it's, you know, certainly there are pressures around being a Christian. There's social pressures uh, about sharing our faith or being open about um, the things that we believe, you know. But it, it's it really is just a different ball game to be to compare that to being arrested and and arrested not just once but four times. I mean, I think you know most of us if we you know if we had been you know arrested for you know, illegally preaching or, or working with a, an underground network of churches or whatever, you know, after the first time or maybe the second time, we might start thinking, well, maybe it's time to, you know, to take a different approach, you know, pull ourselves out of, you know, out of harm's way. But that's, you know, that's not what, uh, you know, that's not what he did. I mean, he, you know, ultimately ended up in jail four different times, four separate times. You know, it's it's really inspiring to be around people who have such a a clear and secure sense of what God has put them on earth to do, uh, regardless of the consequences and regardless of what it costs them. 
Man, that is so good. Uh, Travis, thanks so much for, for making time. We will let you we will let you get to bed, but appreciate it very much. Uh, Travis, thanks for joining us. Thanks also uh, to you for joining us today on this special episode of Capital Conversations. Uh, additional resources, particularly on the situation in Hong Kong, including a recent podcast episode that we did earlier this fall with our friend Olivia Enos on the situation in Hong Kong, will be linked to in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks.